We're going to be talking about John 9. Last week, just to catch you up, if anybody wasn't here, we've been talking about a man who's been blind from birth. And we have this little moment into some weird Old Testament, old school theology that still exists today when this man who has been blind from birth is sitting begging and Jesus and his disciples walk up and the disciples see him and they ask the question, why is he blind? And they give him two options. They say, is he blind because of his sin or is he blind because of his parents' sin? And what I've found about Jesus is anytime you give him two options, he's going to choose a third. All right? You give him A and B, he's always going to pick C, all right? So just count on that. One thing I love to say, and this is just a really sweet lesson for when you're seeking direction in your life, is that almost any time I ask the Lord a question, instead of answering my question, he'll fix the way I ask my question. And even when you see the way that Jesus deals with people in the Word of God, there's so many times that when they ask a question, instead of giving them the answer, which is ab- it was kind of obnoxious because he knows the right answer. He knows the best answer, and yet... He wants to teach us to lean. He wants to teach us to lean on him, and he wants to fix the questions that we ask. And so what he does here with the disciples is the same thing. They, they give him two options, and he picks a third one. So not because of his sin, not because of his parents' sin, for the glory of God. That through this weakness, the glory of God might be displayed in him. Then he proceeds, and there's these three interrogations that happen. And we're going to catch on right here the, near the end in the third interrogation. The first one was of the blind man. Ask him, what happened? He's like, uh, guy came up and made me see. It's like, it was crazy. And they're like, how'd that happen? Rubs mud in his eyes. Now, just to give you a little background on the story, that this is weird. Like we, Andrew did an amazing job of preaching this last week, and this week after spending time in this chapter and meditating on it, I, I recognized how strange and bizarre some of the interaction is that happens. So what takes place, if you don't remember, is Jesus walks up to this man. He gets asked this theological question about him. And Jesus goes up to the man, and he, he does something weird. Now, I want you to imagine just being a spectator to this, okay? There's a handicapped guy who's begging for money. And you're just standing off to the side, and you see, oh, here it is. Rock star, rock star road rabbi Jesus walks up. His disciples are with him. And all of a sudden, he leans down. He picks up mud from the ground or dirt from the ground. He spits in it, turns it into mud, and rubs it on his eyes. Okay, i got to be honest. If I'm standing back and I'm watching this take place, I'm like, that is the most despicable form of bullying I have ever seen. Like, he makes mud out of his own spit and puts it on his face. Like, can you, I mean, this is what, this is not a normal logical response. Even when I'm assuming, okay, I'm going to pray for his healing. That is not the way I would have done it. And then he doesn't heal him in the moment. He says, go to the pool of Siloam, which most of your Bibles will say means sent. And like Andrew talked about last week, this is, at, this is during a feast that revolved around the pool of Siloam as a reminder of God providing for his people. In other words, Jesus wants them to know this feast was actually about me the whole time. I am the sent one. I'm the anointed one. That pool is named after me. And you don't don't get what you need from the pool. You get it from me. So Jesus sends the blind man and he washes and he's healed. The story of one of my favorite characters in church history is a guy named Brother Andrew. Um, 
Brother Andrew, if you know a lot about what happened with uh, with the church um, before the Iron Curtain fell and like the Russian bloc, there was a I mean, it was wild, some of the stories that, have, that came out of that now in the last, like, 30 years of, man, these testimonies of believers who were just, I mean, rocking it for the kingdom of God in the midst of unbelievable persecution. So if you want to know, I love one of my favorite things, the most encouraging things to me in my life is missionary biography. And if you ever want a, a list of missionary biographies, I can give you a, a pretty extensive one. But I'll give you two books right now, and they both come from pastors and men who served in um, behind the Iron Curtain during that season about 40 or 50 years ago. One is one called Tortured for Christ, a man named Richard Vernbrand. And the other is one called God's Smuggler, written by a man named Brother Andrew. And the story of his life is really unique because what he did specifically was he bought a Volkswagen Beetle for the glory of God. I'll explain. Okay, so he, he buys this Beetle, little bitty car. They're, they've always been really offensive to me because, I mean, I have as much of a chance of of driving a go-kart around as I do fitting inside of a Beetle. And so he, he gets this itty-bitty car, and then he, like, kind of tricks it out to where there's all these hiding places in it. And he will sneak over the border and go through these checkpoints and take and deliver Bibles and materials to the underground church in Russia. Now, the crazy thing about that is when you get to these checkpoints, oftentimes during that season, they would actually have mechanics working the checkpoints, who could take out engine blocks, okay? They would have, like, all the equipment needed to, re- I mean, I'm not, t- I'm not saying they just checked under the seat to see if you packed a Bible in. Like, they would take cars apart. And so when Brother Andrew would sneak Bibles into these Russian block countries, he always had the same prayer. And even today, Open Door is the ministry that he began. They, even last year, took two and a half million copies of Scripture and Christian material. Um, now, mostly, they, they minister in the Middle East to areas that do not have access to the Word of God or to materials that will help people grow. And so they still sneak things in today. And every time they cross a border, even today, this is what they pray. God, when you were on earth, you made blind eyes see. Now we ask you, make seeing eyes blind. And today, today we're going to be talking about that. We're going to be talking about the fact that God loves to make blind eyes see. When the story in John 9 has a lot less to do with a blind man who could see and a whole lot more to do with a multitude that couldn't, wouldn't admit it, and remain blind. If you all would, go ahead and open up your Bibles to John chapter 9. We'll start in verse 24. If you'd stand to your feet. We're going to read this together. Verse 24 to the end of the chapter. So, for the second time, they called in the man who had been blind and told him, God should get the glory for this. Oh, wait a second. I've got my wrong. I have the wrong version. One second. I apologize. So, for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you're his disciple, but we're disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he's come from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. 
Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they cast him out. Having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you've seen him. And it's he who's speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment, I came into this world that those who do not see may see. And those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said, are we all so blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you'd have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. All right, you guys can have a seat. I'm going to encourage you that something that I feel like the Lord's just kind of been compelling me to, to remind you all of more often lately, and it's something that I need to hear in my own heart. There are going to be two sermons being preached today. There will be the sermon that I preach with my words, and I hope and I trust that, I, that I'm leaning on Jesus and that I get to, man, that I do the very, very best I can to be a vacant vessel that he can speak through and use and move through. But at the same time, there's going to be a second sermon, and that's the sermon that the Spirit of God is going to be speaking to your own heart. The next chapter we get to actually talks about that. It says, my, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, and they know me, and they follow me. And I want you to know that anytime somebody's up here on this stage sharing, there should be a second sermon going on, and it's the sermon of the Spirit of God is speaking to your heart directly to your need through his word, through the beauty of what he gives us by his spirit to walk in unity with him. So today... I'd love for you to hear the first sermon, but I'm way more excited about you hearing the second one. So as I'm speaking, I just encourage you, man, lean into what the Lord has for you this morning. There are two characters really presented in this story. Now, I know you're thinking, no, 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 there's like the parents, there's all the Pharisees, there's all the, no, no, there's really just two characters. There's a man born blind, and then there are blind people who don't admit, this, who don't admit it and they stay blind. Now, the man who was born blind and admits it gets healed. And the people who can't admit it, they stay blind. And it's important for us to recognize, guys, that there are actually only two characters in this room today as well. They're the people who admit they're blind and are given supernatural sight by the power of the Spirit of God. And there are those who refuse to admit that they're blind, and they'll stay that way. So I'm encouraging us as we walk through this passage Man, to take a good, hard look at where are the parts of my heart that are blind and I'm having a hard time admitting it. And for us to conclude in a place of humility. Jesus came to do two things, it says. There's this, the passage there at the end, this unique verse that honestly kind of threw me off at first. It says, for judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. This is what we talked about a second ago. He came to do these two things, to make blind eyes see. But Jesus came to call out the eyes that think they see and to let people know they're blind. This is the same thing we talked about a couple weeks ago. There's all these moments that we've gone through in the book of John. All these moments that, honestly, my whole life I've celebrated. You know, like when I hear, if the sun sets you free, you are free indeed. I think that's the most beautiful news in all creation. Like how can anyone hear that and not think Good news. 
But when the Pharisees hear that, when people in the Word of God heard that statement, if the Son sets you free, you're free indeed, they looked at Jesus and said, how dare you call us slaves? When he says, I'm the light of the world, they say, how dare you act like we're in the dark? When he says, you act like your father, Satan, they obviously are a little offended, you know? And, they, and he's saying to them, you, you don't understand. Like, you think you've got it, and you're missing the whole point. And the whole point is not just to be a person who gets their sight back. The first step to that, the first step before you can recognize and celebrate freedom is admit boldly, I am enslaved to sin. Everything about me is bent on running away from God without his spirit coming in and teaching me to say yes to him. Every time that I hear I'm the light of the world, I need to also admit, Jesus, without you, I would be in the dark. When I see this, when I see, man, he wants to give me my sight back, I have to first admit I'm blind. I'm blind. And this seems like something we've kept running on repeat, and I think we have to, because if there's something that the Bible runs on repeat, then I want to run it on repeat. And what I find, I don't know if you're anything like me, and if you're not, then I apologize, but I tend to need these reminders more than once a week. I tend to need them about hourly, sometimes every 10 minutes or so. I need these reminders. I need, I heard somebody say one time, they said, I just, they, one of their prayers every morning was, God, tattoo the gospel on the back of my eyelids so that every time I blink, I see it. That every time I blink, I'm reminded of the cross that was required for me to be at a place where I can call myself seeing, to be reminded of the shed blood that has walked me out of darkness and into a wonderful light. So we got this, uh, we've got these moments in here that is the, this blind man who's now seeing kind of teaches a cool theology class at the end of this passage. And so I wanted to walk through some of the things that they were assuming. Now, the disciples in verse 2 of chapter 9 they assume that blindness is a consequence to specific personal sin, either the man or his parents. Now, here's the weird thing. like Blindness is a consequence to sin, but not to his sin or his parents' sin. It's a consequence and a response to the sin that all of us are born into. It's a consequence to the fall. It's a consequence to the fact that you and I, everything in us, until we are raised from the dead, that everything in us is bent on disobedience. Now, this is, a, this is becoming like a teaching that's increasingly unpopular because people want to say, well, no, no, you've, everybody's like inherently good. You can hear it on all kinds of stuff. Honestly, you, could, you can hear this even in some pulpits. Like everyone's inherently good, and God takes goodness and improves it to greatness. Guys, it's not the gospel. God takes death and turns it to life. He takes darkness and turns it to light. He doesn't take dim and make it a little brighter. Okay? And this is important for us to realize because the disciples were in this. The boy's parents were in this. The Pharisees were in this theological understanding. The religious leaders, when they approach him, in this passage, in verse 24, they use these words. They say, give glory to God. It's an interesting phrase that they use because it comes right out of the book of Joshua. In Joshua chapter 7, you'll find a story that's used multiple times in the New Testament. It's a story of a man named Achan. 
Now, Achan, if you recall this story, it's, there's a moment when they, um, the people of Israel are going in. They're going into the promised land, and God has begun just giving Joshua victory after victory after victory, supernaturally so. And suddenly, they go into a little bitty town. And I'm talking, it's like, it's like they, they just defeated Louisville, and now the Lord's like, I need you to take Wilmore, and they go in and get beat. Okay? And it's like, how did Wilmore get us, you know? Ai, it's like it's like freaking Mayberry. How did this happen? You know, so so they go in, they go into Ai, and they get beaten. They're like, "How did this happen? How did this happen?" And they say, "God, what what's wrong? What happened in the camp that caused you to remove your blessing from us?" And there's a man they making who took some spoil that God told them not to take, and instead of giving it to God, he kept it for himself. He hid it under his bed. God exposed it. And they bring him in front of the camp, and Joshua looks at Achan. He says, give glory to God. It was immediately followed by the people of Israel gathering around. Achan, his entire family, every pet he owned, every person in his household, coming to the middle of the camp and being stoned to death. They left them under this pile of stones, a forever permanent graveyard of the consequence of disobedience. Shows up again in the story of Hosea. And one of the most beautiful renditions of the gospel that we have before the cross happens is Hosea pursues a woman who's a prostitute by the call of God and gets to walk through. I mean, his pursuit of her is tragic and heartbreaking and one of the most important stories that you and I will ever read to understand how Jesus loves us. And in that story, he tells her, I'm going to take you to the Valley of Accor where this happened, and I'm going to turn it into a door of hope. Now, this is not the way that the religious leaders are using it that day. When they use this statement, they're saying, give glory to God. In other words, tell us. Tell us that this man is worthy of death. It's the third interrogation. The first one was of the blind man. The second one was of his parents. The third one is they call him back in again. And at this point, they are grasping for something. Like they've watched the impossible happen. And everything in them, everything in them revolves around the power and authority that they have in front of the people. Jesus has humiliated them. He's done it. And everything he's done has been by the call of God, but he has intentionally called them out over and over and over again. And we've said the whole time we're all leading up to one grand finale and one moment that you and I are going to celebrate on Friday. The moment when Jesus takes the consequences of everything that we have ever done, and he takes them to the cross. Everything is leading to that. And the Pharisees are longing for it. They want to come up with some excuse to kill him. And here it is. Here's this man who now they have the impossible standing in front of them. This is a man who's never gotten to be in the presence of the religious leaders because of who he was, because he was blind. He's cast out from society. We talked last week. Andrew did a great job of talking about the way that he's been cast out from his family, that they had chosen to dissociate from him. He's been cast out relationally, spiritually, socially. Everything about this man is outcast. And now, for the first time, for the first time, guys, in his entire life, he could be in. Do you see that? Like, 
His whole life, he's waited for this. He sat begging, blind, believing probably in many, probably many, many times it was hard for him not to believe the theology of the day. I'm here because of my sin, or I'm here because of my parents' sin, or like, why am I here? Whatever reason I can come up with, they all lead to one conclusion, cursed. I'm here, and I'm cursed, and I'm begging, and I am not just distant from people. I'm distant from God. And after all that, after all that, he's got this one, this one hope that he could be in. He probably dreams about it, what it would be like to see, what it would be like to watch as he got to walk into the temple, what it would be like to worship with the people around him. And clearly, because of what we see about his knowledge, because of his understanding of who God is, like he is aware. He's, he's developed a theology as he sat there and begged. And it is, it is obvious that he has been longing, longing to be in. And now he's standing in front of the only men who have the capacity to let him in the door. The only thing he has to do is reject the sight-giving, eye-opening prophet. Real quick, I want to kind of like take a look at verse 34. Verse 34 It's the conclusion of of his conversation with these religious leaders. And obviously, obviously he chooses wisely and he chooses well. And he says, I will reject the thing I've always longed for because I found something better. I found something better. I don't need to get into your club because Jesus is inviting me into his life. Now, here's the crazy thing. I want you to recognize this. This is something I missed as I was reading through it the first couple of times. Do you realize at this point in the story, when this man is being interrogated by the religious leaders, he has still never seen Jesus? Isn't that wild? He's never seen him. At this point, he's standing there in front of these religious leaders, and he He is choosing Jesus over everything he's ever longed for, and he's not even seen him yet. Because when he goes to the pool of Siloam, he gets his sight back. But at that point, Jesus isn't there. And we know this from the story. We know this because when he comes out of there, then he gets to, Jesus comes up to him and finds him. You know? He comes up and finds the seeing man who was born blind. And he's like, hey, you you believe in the Son of Man? And he's like, you show me where to aim my faith, and I will fire away. You tell me who he is, and I'm all in. Guys, this, this moment here, this theological moment, this theological class that this blind man teaches, it kind of all comes back to one simple thing. And Andrew brought it up last week, but I, I think it needs a little bit more attention. It's just this karma theology. This karma theology that everything that happens is a reaction to something else that took place. You know, everything that what I did now produced this. Now, here's the hard thing is we reap what we sow, and there are consequences to sin. So we don't want to remove the reality of consequences to sin and of there being actions that end up having reactions. Those things are obviously true. But this thought process and this concept that, like, Whatever is happening in my life is a direct result of what happened earlier, some wrong that I've done. Now, we can see this in, in big ways, or we can see this in small ways. I, 
I recently had a conversation with somebody who was telling me that God had taught him a hard lesson. And he was like, yeah, I learned a hard lesson. Then he said, he, he said, you know, I, I hope I learned it or else God will make me go back and do it again. And I was like, man, I, I just don't know if that's always the way the Lord's going to be to you. That like, oh, you didn't learn it this time, so now I'm going to take you back into that desert one more again. Because the thing that the thing that doesn't quite add up with this Old Testament concept in theology is that now, like, I'm sitting inside of a grace that is so profound that he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. It's Hebrews chapter 10. And what I find that tends to happen for me is a lot of times when I'm thinking this way, you know, something good happens, it's like, yeah, it's because of that good thing I did yesterday. Like, woke up and did my quiet time today. Found a close parking spot at church. Hashtag blessed. You know, it's like, no, maybe you found a close parking spot because the Lord's calling you to pass by it so that an old lady can get it later on. Repent. Just kidding. No, but I, but like there's this reality that I see in my own heart. Do y'all do that? You know what I'm saying? Like, oh, I did something good. So later on when something nice happens, it's like, oh, yeah, it's the fruit of that. It's like, no, no, it's the fruit of the fact that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. Whether it's a parking spot or whether it's a greater blessing from God, like everything that God does for us is not because of some behavioral modification or the good habits that you've built. It comes as a consequence to the righteousness of God, not your own righteousness. And that is what the religious leaders and this man's parents and the disciples and everybody else was missing except for two people, Jesus and a man born blind. And in this moment, in front of these religious leaders, This young man gets to teach them. And you see the Spirit beginning to open his eyes to see things that he could not see on his own. And he's lived in it. He's lived in the consequence of this poor theology his whole life, this karma theology. I fell in love with the nation of India like uh, probably about 10 years ago. Love it. I tell people it's like my second home. When I go to India, my friends always tell me, they say, they say, your skin, your skin is American but your stomach is Indian because I just I love Indian food. I love it. I'll get all the spicy stuff, pour a little more hot sauce on. It's the best. I love it. All right, so I go to, I've been about a half a dozen times. And the first time I went, I just went because I'd made some friends who had come to visit here and wanted to go and see their ministry. And then it like, I mean, it just began to feel like home. And man, I fell in love with, I love like the cities and the urban environments, but I really fell in love with these villages. Now, every village in India, they will say that the caste system has passed away, but in all actuality, it's pretty prevalent, um, especially in the village culture. And so you walk into these villages, and every village is associated with a caste. Now, I always thought, when we were taught in school about Hinduism, about the nation of India, we heard about a caste system that had like five levels. And underneath it was the ones, the Dalit, or the untouchables. It was kind of beneath the caste system. They're legitimately considered less than human. And now, the wild thing is you've got You've got these casts, but within every cast, there's like multiple subcasts, and I mean, it goes on and on and on. And my friends, when I drive around, they could point to churches and say, that church is this cast. That temple is this cast. There's all these associations, and the way that that culture works within the caste system and where you're placed is all based on karma, which means because of what you did in a past life, you've ended up here today. Now, that seemed like, okay, yeah, that's weird and something kind of like just an Eastern mentality that I don't understand because I've got like a more Western kind of Greek Hellenistic learning style mentality in my life. But when I got to see it in person, 
I realized how sadistic this attitude could become. Because when you walk into you walk into a slum, walked into a slum one time and there were a million people. It was in a city that when I looked it up online, they said there are eight million people. When I got there and talked to the locals, they said it's probably closer to twenty four million. There's only about there's only eight million that the nation actually counts as human. There's only eight million that they would consider as real people. That slum there where you see literally a million people across the countryside, not one of them exists as far as India is concerned. You told me about villages that when they would come down their mountain and they'd say, where are you guys going? They wouldn't say the village. They'd say, I'm going to go visit India while they were in the middle of India because they weren't apart. And you get there and I thought, man, this is like 40% of every um, of every person living in abject poverty on earth lives in the nation of India. And I remember going and being like, man, why we need to like help these people. And I, I just imagine it would be so easy to motivate people there to say, man, we want to, we want to minister to those around us. Like regardless of religious background or what they thought about who God was, everybody has to see that as a good thing. But they don't. Because if you believe in karma and you see a poor person and you help a poor person, you are literally doing something that is undoing the actions of the gods. And helping poor people becomes an unrighteous act. And I remember seeing this live for the first time, and I was like, this is unbelievable. This is, I mean, just like gripped my heart. I was like, oh, this is so tragic. This is like terrible. And then I realized, like, wait, this, this attitude, this concept of like, well, People kind of get what they deserve. What goes around comes around. Guys, I recognize that we reap what we sow. But as believers, we reap what we didn't sow. This is the beauty of the gospel. I reap the righteousness of Christ. And the righteousness of Christ comes into my life as an exterior source to do in me what I could not do in myself. And he changes the way that I act and live. Now, there are consequences to sin. I know there are lines within this that would take days and weeks of sermons to properly describe and understand. And maybe one day in conversation, you and I can do that. But I need us to understand on the front end, this karma theology is dangerous. And this understanding that we have oftentimes that you just kind of get what you deserve. Guys, as believers, we have a different perspective. And even more importantly, we have a different invitation to offer to people. And it's the same thing that Jesus offered to this blind, this blind man. Now the cool thing is he's never seen him before, but he chooses him. He chooses him over everything that he had always longed for. Phrase in verse 35 says, having found him. Jesus, Jesus doesn't, doesn't wait for this blind man to ask around. He doesn't wait for him to to go around and say, I've got to find Jesus. Where is he? Where is he gone? Where is he staying? I want to pursue him. He, Jesus meets him. And meets him just outside. And the beautiful thing that we, we need to make sure not to overlook in this passage is every time, every time that someone is found in this passage, and it's the blind man both times, whenever he is He's found on the road begging. Whenever he's found outside of this interrogation, Jesus always takes the initiative. Lost people don't find themselves, guys. 
Dead people don't raise themselves. Only God can do that. Tell me where he is. Tell me where he is, and I'll put all my faith in him. I love the way that this blind man responds. You can tell it's like, it's like his faith is on the edge of his seat. It's like submission is on the tip of his tongue. He's like, I want to know who that man is. And Jesus says, you're talking to him. You have seen him. Okay, how sweet is that line? He's talking to the dude that he gave sight back that has not met him yet. All right? And he comes out and he's like, hey, man, um, you believe in the Son of Man? You know, and, and this man just, I mean, you, you know, like he's, he has just given up everything. Like he's at, th- this may be 60 seconds after. It could be a few minutes. Who knows how long it's been. But right after he leaves this interrogation and right after his one opportunity he's ever had in his whole life to be in, to go to the temple, to be, feel like he was included by God, he walks out and God himself walks up to him and says, you've seen him. Your eyes didn't just get to open up and see Jerusalem around you. You didn't just finally catch sight of the pool of Siloam. You have seen God himself. What now? Because I'm going to read you a passage that, to be honest, it, gosh, it like terrifies me in some ways. And I think I actually read this a few months ago at the end of another sermon, but I realize this is, man, this is just the truth This is the truth that I need to hear over and over again. And it's out of Revelation chapter 3. And in Revelation chapter 3, it's the very, very last church that that get letters from these angels. There's seven churches that get letters, and they get letters directly from Christ. These words, these, these commissions from God, and oftentimes these warnings. And in Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, we have the church at Laodicea. The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. You say I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing, not realizing you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you. To buy from me gold, refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Because at the end of this chapter, the, the Pharisees finally get it. They say, are you calling us blind? And Jesus, in essence, says, finally, finally you understand I need you to understand that you're one of two characters in this story. We've only got two options. Every person in here fits in one of these two categories. 
You're either a person who admits that you're blind until the Spirit of God comes in and shines a great light on you. Or you're blind and won't admit it. Revelation chapter 3, Church of Laodicea, it's the one that many people oftentimes associate with kind of where we are and specifically with the American church. And every time I read it, it just grips me. And I think, man, what, Lord, what does it look like? And it's sweet because I don't think he made it really profound. He made it a little easier for us than he did for the blind man in the story. He didn't tell you, you got to take the, you got to walk with mud on your face and find a way to get down to the pool with your walking stick. He just said, repent. Repent. What does repent mean? A lot of times, like, in our culture, most people are looking for, when you do something wrong, they're looking for an apology. They're looking for a sorry. Well, sorry is very, very different than repent. Sorry is a halfway repentance, legitimately. Sorry is when you stop and you say, I've done something wrong. Repent is when you're walking one way, you stop and you say, I've done something wrong, and you turn around and you walk a completely opposite way. It's a word called metanoia, and it's a word that was a word that was like a military word that was like about face. When you're marching, you stop. About face. And you've not repented until you begin to walk in the opposite direction. So what's he call us to? Admit you're blind. Admit you need him. First Corinthians chapter one. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Charles Spurgeon said this, and we'll close. It's not our littleness that hinders Christ, but our bigness. It's not our weakness that hinders Christ, but our strength. It's not our darkness that hinders Christ. It's our supposed light that holds back his hand. I don't know if I'm ever going to top a, a sermon that comes in red letters out of the book of Revelation, and so I won't try. I'll just give you the exact same thing that Jesus said. Guys, how do you respond? Repent. If you're a person that, man, you say, gosh, I've, but I've never done anything too terrible wrong. I'm not done more good than bad. I'm, I'm decent. I've got like a pretty good standard of morality and I try to keep it and I do a lot better than the guy next to me or than other people that I see around me. Guys, I, I got to let you know until you admit you're blind, you don't have any hope of regaining sight. You got no hope. But the moment you come to Jesus and say, Lord, I'm blind, I'm weak, I'm pitiful, and I'm hopeless. What he does is not just take your life and improve it. He takes your life and he crucifies it. And in its place, he resurrects a divine life. So now, my commission to you is the exact same, same thing that Jesus said to the Laodiceans. Guys, repent. If you love Jesus and walk with him with all your heart, man, ask him to call out any place in you that does not look identical to him yet. And if you're a person who's in here and you say, man, I, I just I have a hard time admitting that I'm blind. I have a hard time admitting that I'm weak. Ask him 
Say, God, give me the strength to do the thing that I cannot do by myself, to humble me and to come to you in repentance. We're going to sing. We're just going to sing an old song, Amazing Grace. John Newton stole one of his most famous lines in that song right out of this passage. I was blind, but now I see. I'm going to ask you to stand. If you want to sing along with us, you can. But I'd also encourage you, if you want to take this time just to get along with Jesus, come down here. I love these carpets. Come down here a lot during the week. Just hang out. They're pretty comfy, real gentle on the knees if you want to come down here and just get along with Him. Or you can do that in your seat. There's nothing special about coming to an altar. But whatever it takes for you to really get real with Jesus, maybe that you need just to admit, gosh, I, I need help and I need someone to pray with me. I know, I know we've got Andrew's going to be in the back. I know we've got a couple of friends here who, who love to spend time in prayer with people. And if a couple of you would come up here to the front. But guys, t- today as we respond and repent, say, Jesus, take out everything in me that does not look like you. Replace it with your likeness.